The Harper's Podcast is supported by the Vilcek Foundation, honoring immigrant contributions to the U.S. The 2020 Vilcek Foundation Prizes recognize authors Edwidge Dondika, Ya Jesse, Valeria Luiselli, and poet Jenny Shea. Learn more at vilcek.org. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. The internet loves to reinvent itself. Photobucket was once the cool new way to share photos with your friends, which was then replaced by Flickr, which was then replaced by Facebook, which was then replaced by Instagram, but Facebook owns Instagram, so no big loss. The internet has also successfully reinvented pre-existing media, such as cable, as subscription streaming sites, and radio, as podcasts. In the February issue, Hugh Eakin takes a critical view of podcasting and explores some of the medium's higher-profile ethical failures, which have ranged from plagiarism to basic factual errors, but that didn't have any serious consequences. In this episode, I spoke with Eakin, who is a big fan of podcasts, mind you, about the conventions and experiential elements that define podcasting, but often go unspoken. What sort of process did you go through in order to write this review? Because you're, you know, you're citing these different podcast producers, other people in the industry. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I I'm I have to admit I'm I'm a podcast addict. I mean, I I I I started thinking about this just because I um, was listening to uh, so many podcasts, and I sort of was sort of struck that there was this subgenre, these sort of history podcasts, and then I was sort of surprised to discover that actually, um, not only was it a large subgenre, but it's it was very popular and this kind of sector that, you know, there is a, a real demand for this. And so I, 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 that sort of was where I got started from. And I guess the other thing that was really striking was at the time I was starting this, I was listening to some of the, what I describe in the piece, these kind of older, old style <laughs> history podcasts, which are like the kind of amateur really serious, but kind of chronological history. You know, I'm just curious about, there's an amazing one about, uh, I think I mentioned this in the in the piece, the, the history of the English language, but it's, it's really comprehensive. I mean, it takes like, I, I can't remember how many episodes, 30 or 40 episodes before you even get to the oldest form of English. I mean, you're starting with like the Indo-European languages and it's like this this huge kind of, a magisterial presentation of linguistics, the history of linguistics and the development of language, and uh, it's fascinating, but it's really intense, and it's 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 kind of the opposite of all of this this new genre, the kind of revisionist history genre, and so I was really interested in that, and to see that a podcast like that would never ever get commercial sponsorship or. <laughs> all the qualities that are kind of selling points today. And, and that sort of led to this really interesting kind of discovery that this big podcasting, as, as we're calling it now, is kind of predicated on being able to come up with this kind of formula of, of, a sh- of, of shows that, that can fit this, you know, packaged, really 
strong narratives, um, really tight editing and, and sort of cross-cutting scenes and dramatization, sometimes using actors, reenactments, sound. You know, it's really important to have, you know, theme music. And it's a really, it's a, it's a whole different kind of approach. So it's just, I, I think that's sort of what led me into the, the project. And, you know, it was a combination of a lot of listening and, and then talking to people in the industry and, and just trying to get sort of a handle on also on this sort of sea change that was happening in the, the kind of business infrastructure over the past year with like Spotify and all this huge amounts of, of kind of corporate money pouring in and how that might have sort of accelerated the, the this kind of new approach to um, high production value shows. Yeah, absolutely. To what extent are podcasts the equivalent of conservative talk radio in the 90s? Because this boom is certainly not the first time America has fallen in love with radio again. Well, yeah, great question. I think, uh, I mean, that's certainly true. There's this sort of hidden story about podcasting, which is that so much of it comes from older radio uh genres and techniques and styles. And uh, I mean, you can go back to kind of earlier 20th century storytelling on the radio. And then sort of in the late 20th century, of course, talk radio. And I mean, I think the striking thing about podcasting today, I mean, if you look at, say, the top 100 or the, the iTunes chart is that overwhelmingly, to the extent there is a political bias, you don't see the kind of, you don't see kind of very many right-wing political podcasts that might be the, the, the podcast equivalent of talk radio. That said, I think you can, you could definitely see some, some interesting parallels about how our sort of endless fascination with minutia of, uh, that, that sort of come out in, in dialogue. Um, what, what i interested in in, in, the, in, the, in the Harper's piece, of course, was, was sort of narrative podcasting, which I think is quite, quite a different genre than, than talk radio. But I, I do think that, that sort of one parallel that's sort of interesting is, is the importance of the host. And so much of the talk radio is about the host and we, this, the kind of cult that develops around, I mean, cult is a, maybe too strong a word, but, but there's a kind of uh, a fandom that, that, you know, whether it's Howard Stern or um, that listeners develop. And I think that, that there is in sort of the current iteration of, of breakout successful podcasts are so dependent on the, the host. And uh, we as listeners develop this kind of bond, as one producer described it to me, with the host. And that gives a huge kind of potential, but also, you know, it comes with the risks as well, um, which are some of the things I, I talk about in, in the piece. Right. And I mean, you mentioned narrative. However, the majority of the most popular podcasts are nonfiction. So we're taking a narrative approach to nonfiction. Certainly that's something Harper's readers will be familiar with. It's good. <laughs> it's not a bad <laughs> approach. Um, but do you have any theories on why 
nonfiction is so popular right now. I mean, some of it is probably the presidency of Donald Trump, but it was going on before then. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that that's pretty a central quality to podcasting and going back a, a number of years that, you know, I mean, you, you can go into its early history and certainly there's a place for fiction podcasts and, and it's worth noting that there there have been some really successful ones like um, Welcome, to, Welcome Night to Night Vale, Vale exactly, or Limetown. Um, mm-hmm. But these are, are kind of exceptions. I mean, if you're really looking at what what is the sort of dominant genre, I think it's overwhelmingly nonfiction. And uh, you could say, I mean, look at true crime. <laughs> There's just so much interest in that genre, but we don't have a parallel kind of crime fiction, you know, a huge similar array of, of interest in that. So I think that, that coming out of, out of this kind of true crime explosion uh, that happened sort of five or six years ago, Serial and, and other podcasts, that there was this kind of demonstration that there is this very large audience and this intense interest in true stories and perhaps the current political environment has enhanced that this kind of obsession with truth and and sort of getting getting to the bottom of things so i don't know if that gets any closer to it but i think yeah we have to acknowledge that overwhelmingly podcasting is is nonfiction and that's sort of where some of these kind of complicated issues because it is narrative and it's driven by storytelling but it's also based around or or self-presents as being based around, I mean, many of these shows around events, facts, uh, history. So there's this kind of tension, I think, that's just inherent in in the genre. Right. I mean, I will say that things like Serial or other reimaginings or rethinking of a famous crime or a not-so-famous crime is that there's some degree of ambiguity there, Right. Where, you know, well, maybe we don't really know what the truth is and we can never know what the truth is. And sort of this very entry level philosophical approach to what is, you know, what is real takes place. And I'm I mean, I'm the the thing that strikes me about podcasting and sort of its resurgence or the resurgence of interest in podcast radio, just listening to people's voices rather than watching something it seems to me that there is, you know, maybe a shift in how people are working where you can have something that you're just kind of sort of paying attention to as you're going to work or while you're working and that it may seem like you're doing this intellectual challenge. And I'm not saying there aren't podcasts that offer some sort of intellectual challenge, but it seems like a lot of popular ones are writing on this very facile idea of we're asking these not-so-big questions. The way in which nonfiction is treated seems pretty formulaic, and it seems to be asking a lot of the same questions or phrasing or recontextualizing historical events through a modern lens, like a, a, a modern lens that might not be entirely fair for certain historical events. Like, 
the story of Elizabeth Thompson is told on revisionist history. Again, something that's positioning itself as this is a revision of what we already know. It's putting it in this modern context that might not be entirely fair for for us to understand her story. Yeah, no, no, I think that's always the danger. And um, of course, I mean, one should preface this by saying there are so many different podcasts and approaches to podcasting as, you know, so it's hard to it's hard to generalize. And but I do think there is this, I mean, you can see it in, in a number of shows. And it was interesting. I mean, and, and these are not only just sort of the new podcast startup kind of shows like NPR in its own podcast lineup has a show that's been up for about a year now called Throughline. And it's, it's kind of another one of these shows that goes back in, I mean, their kind of mantra, I think, is, you know, we, where we go back in time to understand the present, which is a kind of variation of what you sort of a, a, a kind of theme that, that, so many of these shows have taken up and it's kind of natural. People don't want to just have this kind of trivia interest in the past. This is kind of the the hook. It's telling us something about the present. So, you know, Elizabeth Thompson in this, in this uh, framing becomes a figure about glass ceilings and, and that's maybe that wasn't really the issue at the time. So it's, (laughs) there's, there's there's always a kind of ambiguity, and I'm not saying that it, this can't be done, and it's often done very well, but I think by having this premise, we're already kind of boxing in the story that's going to be told. And, and when you, you, you said there's a kind of formula, I think that's right. And, and in fact, I mean, it's interesting just to look at the way so many of these podcasts have kind of taken on a structure, um, and, you know, we've kind of settled on this sort of 30 to 40 minute length, which is, I guess, a kind of, it's like your commute time, <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there are fewer, fewer podcasts now that are, you know, an hour or more, because I think they figured out that this is like the the listener span. And then within that time, you want to have this nice narrative arc, you want to, you know, be able to tell a story that has a satisfying sort of, you know, build up suspense and has a kind of narrative payoff. And I think that also plays into this this idea that you have to have a kind of definite, you know, we're going to tell you something you didn't know, and this is this is kind of how it is, rather than kind of, oh, let's raise a bunch of questions about this issue, which might not, we, it might be interesting, but it might be less satisfying narratively. So when you start doing all those things, you end up with more more situations where you could kind of have this tension with the underlying history or facts. So, yeah, but I, I think that's definitely true, that, that the whole popularity in a way is predicated on being able to package stories from the past into this kind of compelling truth narrative that's going to that's gonna bring people in. Right. Or just the idea that you are learning something new or you're learning something that you... It, you know, it's taking the randomness of the internet and kind of streamlining it for you and, pr- and curating this um, this thing that you might not have otherwise known. It's a revision. It's a it's a it's an intense look at history that you wouldn't have gotten in school, or maybe you just forgot. Maybe you did get it and you totally forgot. But I find it fascinating that the medium is so entwined with the notion of nonfiction and learning, just like a lot of YouTube is. 
Yeah, it's really interesting because it, it's such a, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's such a free-for-all. And this is where I, I, I think the, you know, the issue of critical scrutiny comes in. There's this immense potential that's been shown now, this immense audience potential, and people are definitely, some of these these shows are, are really well done. I mean, high production values, very tight editing, but when it comes to the, you know, we're, we're talking about nonfiction, we're talking about events. What what is the relation to these underlying stories? And in in, the, in this sort of effort to tell us something new or to be revisionists, are we actually getting to the bottom of something, or are we actually really more kind of being led by the narrative or by the kind of entertainment value? So there is this constant tension. I think that's true. I mean, it's obviously true. You know, you could say it's true in, in, you know, making documentary films or other kinds of nonfiction. But I think the difference is, is here, it's really wide open because there is so little critical policing. It's really driven more sort of by fandom, which is, I think, really interesting. And we could talk about that, too. Yeah, I would love to hear about you open the article with a an example of just a complete dereliction of ethics where these two hosts had wholesale plagiarized their script from a newspaper. And again, that's only something you would know if you took that extra step to look something up and find out that like, hey, okay, this is not original material. This is completely plagiarized. So how does that policing, and I guess what could the role of a more robust critical apparatus for podcasts work because right now it's kind of anything goes. Well, it's strange. I mean, it, it's kind of a curious to, to ask, you know, so why, wh- why isn't there this critical interest? Because it is suddenly, you know, everybody said, you know, 2019, this is the year that podcasting, if you weren't persuaded already by serial uh, a few years ago, it's pretty clear now that this is a, a very mainstream big media um, sector and that, you know, we're talking about tens of millions of people every week taking in the the leading shows. And yet when you look around the, the kind of critical landscape, what you get is the kind of listicles, you know, these are your mm-hmm. the top five podcasts or three to listen to uh, this month. And you don't, there's really very little or, or I mean, in fairness, there are longer pieces about certain features about podcasts, but it tends to be this kind of qualitative thing. And I think if you look behind that, the ones that get the attention are ones that already have this very large fan base. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I was interesting just looking up, you know, Crime Junkie, This, which is, I mean, admittedly, it's just blown off the charts. I mean, it had this sort of amazing rise to prominence in the space of a year uh, or, or maybe 18 months build up this huge audience. And then, you know, if you look sort of when it begins to sort of show up in the national media, it's kind of following that. And then, you know, Rolling Stone is mentioning this as, you know, this is a top crime podcast you should listen to. And But you don't see along the way the kind of critical examination of like, so, so what, what, let's take one of these cases that they're talking about, where are they getting their material? And so until this, until this controversy erupted last summer, there really wasn't any critical scrutiny and, and, and not that that really generated any either. And mm-hmm. I think that was sort of interesting that there was that, you know, there was the news coverage of the controversy, but then 
it died down and you know it it had almost no effect and i mean it was it was its position on the charts uh was almost as high right afterwards so um and i don't think that experience was unusual if you look look around there i just you know didn't find serious criticism of 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 some of the you know the leading shows and so I think that I mean, if 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 you wanted to say why that's happened, I mean, it, you could say, well, maybe we just haven't caught up to it yet. But I think a larger maybe explanation lies in this kind of fan-driven culture mm-hmm. um, of podcasting, and that you know, a, a couple of people in the industry that I talked to, you know, one of them said to me, well, you know, it's it's interesting that you know, with the media, there's there's always people. Who kind of are just on the on the prowl for mistakes and it, New York Times haters or Washington Post haters who are going to like go and jump on any story or or um, whereas with podcasts it really is you don't have what this person described to me as hate listeners you know you don't people don't <laughs> don't sort of there's there's kind of some effort involved you have to opt in you have to subscribe it's usually word of mouth. Somebody says, oh, you should listen to this. And if you like it, you stay with it. And it's not sort of in your face if you're not listening to it. So it may be that it, it kind of gets a pass, you know, that the the people that are following any particular show the most closely are the people who love that show. And, you know, at the end of every episode of a show like Crime Junkie, you hear the host say, you know, if you like us, give us a five-star rating. And the way these podcasts are rated, rated and measured are driven by their own fans. So it's it's very hard, I think, to kind of develop kind of critical distance from the sheer numbers. And the industry itself is kind of geared toward that too, because the advertisers are, are looking for these these top shows that get the most listeners. And so it's sort of reinforcing, they get the most revenue. And it's interesting. I mean, it, it, we Maybe five years from now, this will all have passed. But as of now, I think it's this moment where you have all this money pouring into podcasting, or at least a small sort of the the breakout corner of of podcasting, but not any of the kind of breaks that might ordinarily be put on that by critics or old-style journalistic conventions or standards. Can we talk about that shift towards a fan culture? Because I think you can see it all over media. You can see it in film reviewing. You can see it in music reviewing. You can see it even in how something like the New York Times markets itself, where it's like, okay, we have our audience and we've got to phrase things in a way that is amenable to clicks, amenable to someone giving us their attention. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to think about. Is 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 there something unique about podcasting that makes it more susceptible to to fandom and uh, fan culture? Um, it, it certainly is a kind of pervasive part of the, the 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 media landscape today. But but I guess maybe there are interesting aspects. Uh, about podcasting, I think they kind of make it stand out. One of them that I find really interesting, I mean, it's, it's sort of obvious, but when you think about it, it's it's kind of unusual that almost every other form of media, whether it's a film or a new book or a new play or just a, a, an exhibition, it's so time sensitive. It has its 15 minutes of fame, but it all has to kind of happen 
at the moment of release. And, you know, a book that doesn't get attention right away kind of may fade, even if it's a great overlooked title. However, podcasting is sort of the opposite, that the release rarely matters. It's all about building up this fan base over time. And I mean, mm-hmm. look look at Serial. It's getting all these downloads. It was really well into its run that it, like, by, by the time... I mean, it's sort of interesting to listen to some of those early episodes. And at the end of the episode, they're asking for kind of listener donations and thinking like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so there's this idea of building up audience over time and, and the kind of no uh, expiration date. And a lot of the, I mean, and that's sort of this, this area of um, narrative nonfiction. I mean, these history shows, they have this kind of topicality or they feel topical, but they often aren't. So you can go back and listen to the first season of Revisionist History or one of these other shows. And it doesn't feel, you know, most of the episodes, there's, there's no, there, there's nothing that would make it feel out of date because they're, they're dealing with subjects from the past that have been dug up and are, are kind of being presented in a new way. So I think the genre also has this incredible shelf life, which which feeds into being able to build up uh, a kind of fan base. And then it also, uh, these newer shows have this structure, which, which I think I talk about in a piece where it's kind of like it's borrowed from, I mean, the analogy is more like TV drama. So you have these, you know, seasons, you know, 10 or 12 episodes. It The season itself may have a kind of, focus. And I know that a lot of podcast studios now, the way they're banking on this is they're looking at multi-season shows when, Mm -hmm. I mean, they want an idea that they can run with because they know that they're going to have to build up this, this fan base. And if they're successful, it's really hard to kind of start up again. So it's much better if you have something that you can do a second iteration of, uh, or a third or a fourth. So it really is, it, it does have these kind of fan qualities that I think you don't see um, uh, any almost anywhere else. And I think an important thing, or something that would make it seem like we're less averse to podcasts, obviously this is a podcast. I like podcasts. I listen to podcasts. <laughs> There's nothing inherently wrong with the form. Yeah. And again, like these are these were not trying to generalize to the point that everything must be written off. But it would be interesting to hear why you think they do attract such rabid fans. I, does it have to do with the intimacy of hearing someone's voice in your ear, sound engineered in a way where it's like you're in the same room with them, as opposed to reading yeah, their that, words? That, that's a great question. I think that, uh, I mean, it was interesting because I, I, I became really curious about this because a number of prominent podcast hosts have in 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 various ways sort of said this that especially people who have worked in um you know have been writers or you know television hosts who then go into podcasting is that they 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 remark about the sort of unique qualities that they discover when they they're, they're podcasting that there is this kind of different relationship with your audience that, that it, it, it's all about the host and the, the voice and uh, when you're successful you can I mean and it's not just 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 the host I mean it's it's also the material that you present if you're telling a story and you use a really 
someone's account, you know, uh, an eyewitness or a even just a source who maybe, you know, you're telling a story about something that happened 70 years ago, but you 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 find the the great grand nephew who has some personal relation to this event and can tell a really great story, whether or not that's that's the kind of you know, most historically bomb-proof account of, of that event, it may be really powerful listening, as, as listening. And you can do so much with that because you don't have to show pictures. You don't have to kind of prove. It's not this kind of dry textual thing where you you're, you have to quote, you know, let's see some evidence. Um, it's really, all, it's more about this kind of emotional connection. And uh, I'm not saying this is a negative thing. It's just interesting to think about how this works. And, and when you see, you know, people like Michael Lewis, who is, you know, an amazing storyteller in print, but then he did, you know, he did this podcast and uh, hearing him talk about it. And he says, you know, I could, you know, in the podcast, I could do this so easily just by this woman told her story and it just seemed so powerful. And if I had done that in print, it wouldn't have had the same effect. And so there's there's this very strong awareness of that, I think, uh, especially among people who have have sort of made their careers in other genres, and you've seen you know this crossover now, and you know Conan O'Brien and Rachel Maddow, and I mean people from TV are you wouldn't think would necessarily be so drawn to what you might have regarded as this kind of lesser form, but in fact podcasting has all this potential. And I, 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 I would speculate that that has a lot to do with this the unique qualities of sound as a kind of persuasive medium. Right. There's no lying with sound because you can always hear a bad cut. Your ears just operate differently than your eyes do because you can get away with a lot of stuff with video and you can see whatever you kind of want to see. But with when you're hearing something, you're there in a way. And again, I think you're totally right to say that this is, for someone who is not a totally ethical storyteller, it can be a real shortcut to becoming a great, to being considered like a great storyteller. And I, I think that intimacy can sometimes influence how subjects that are maybe more ethically questionable, like it's okay to go looking for Richard Simmons or speculate on the life of uh, John B. Micklemore on S-Town. Because there's that intimacy there, you can kind of go places that maybe you really shouldn't go, but because you're being guided along by someone who sounds like they know what they're doing, you can go there and not feel weird about it until someone else is like, hey, excuse me, that's not, it, it, leave Richard Simmons alone. He, he has every right to just be by himself. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, there, there's this incredible kind of trust that we we have. I mean, I know I <laughs> if 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 there's a particular uh, a podcast that you, you you know after you've listened to a, a certain number of episodes, you you kind of de- develop a, a you have a sense of the the ticks and the the personal style of the host, and you're you're kind of with them and, and you're led where they go. And yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting that we have that, I think, in ways that maybe you don't really have in, in other 
in other media. And that, I mean, it has this great potential and at its best, it's really incredible, but it also has this kind of risk in that it, it, it's almost as if our, 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 our kind of our guard is down when we're listening in this way and we're less likely to challenge what we, what we hear just on our own sort of instinctive level, as opposed to maybe reading, uh, say an opinion piece or a an argument that that maybe doesn't seem seem correct because we're not sort of emotionally involved in it and I think there is a kind of emotional attachment when you're when you're when you're listening to to something pretty pretty powerful so it, it does have this this kind of quality and that that's that's really that's really interesting um, well, given that it does have that property what are some things that listeners even even if you have formed this uh, inexplicable emotional relationship through sound with uh, this random host, what are what are some things that a listener could watch out for that lets you know that maybe this is a loaded reading, maybe this is a not totally accurate reading, maybe this is something that they didn't even generate themselves. Well, that, that's a really, I mean, that's a really good starting point. I mean, and I, I think this is sort of the problem of the whole enterprise when you're, when you're doing a, a kind of a, a history podcast or a, a kind of inv- an investigative subject where you're looking into something is that <laughs> rarely, I mean, there are exceptions like, like In the Dark, for example, which, you know, did this amazing kind of re-reporting of this, this case, which in Louisiana, which ends up, you know, actually bringing it back to court. But I think that that's pretty unusual and that, that really there's so much effort that goes into an original investigation. And that's not really, I think, what the sort of predominant model is about. It's really about kind of uncovering sort of obscure stories that someone has done somewhere and usually drawing on those I mean, they, they're, 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 they're getting that material from somewhere. And I think that uh, one of the questions that's easy to kind of have in mind when you're listening to these shows is, so, so where is this coming from, really? And sometimes you can tell because they'll, they'll interview the one person who has done that point of view on this event and has written a book arguing, making that argument or something. But sometimes it's just harder to tell. And then, you know, often it's just interesting to go back and look and say, oh, is that, was that really what happened? And then sort of see what, and I think uh, to their credit, some of these shows do now have websites and they'll, they'll list two or three sources that they drew on for the particular show. There's actually a great history show called The Memory Palace that does these these very short kind of little vignettes about some particular event, and then it'll have this kind of list of of sources that it drew on. But it's a kind of literary show, and it's, I think, different than these, these kind of bigger shows that are really trying to make an argument about history that has this uh, present-day relevance. And that, I think a lot of those shows, you, you just, you do have to look at what is the sourcing? Where are they getting their material? Are they telling you 
what the sources are. Are they just sort of asserting this is how it was? And it can be interesting, really, to ask those questions. Again, I mean, I, I would I would refer to comments that I heard from some people, you know, in in the podcast world. And and I, I, one of the memorable ones that stood out to me was, well, you know, with 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 podcasts, unlike other media, you don't have to tell listeners what you're not telling them (laughs) in the sense that, you know, you can omit things that are inconvenient to your narrative or your story in ways that I think it's easier to do than say, if you're writing a, you know, a magazine piece on a particular event in, in the siege of Mecca or some, some event in history that, and that's interesting too, because a lot of these shows do have fact checkers that the sort of most high production value shows have, you know, big editing teams and they have fact checkers. But I think it's very hard even as a fact checker to check material that's not even being included. I mean, in other words, you can include, you can tell a true story based on what you have included, but omit other things that are maybe really important to telling that story. Right. To what extent do you feel like podcasts will go the way of blogging where in the early aughts it it wouldn't be uncommon for some sort of conversation like the one we're having right now to just go on a blog and live there and now blogs are pretty dead and they just sort of exist out there for people to find if they're looking for a particular topic and a lot of early blogging suffered from the same problems that podcasting does now where Maybe the facts were a little fast and loose. Maybe the language wasn't perfect, but it fit this formula and it adhered to this rhythm that was really well suited to what the internet was doing then. How do you think the standards that we hold podcasts to are shaped by the virtues of the internet now where it's sort of the internet is everywhere. We're always multitasking, you know, we're working, we're making dinner. We're not necessarily in a quiet room listening to somebody tell us a story. Yeah. I mean, it, it's also sort of like when people were predicting the death of, of newspapers or the death of, you know, one of the interesting things, even apart from podcasting has, has been the kind of resilience of radio itself Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of a backbone of, of, of that is that, you know, we do have all of this listening space, even in our kind of transformed, you know, hyper distracted lives now. And, and that that's, if anything, been enhanced by like the innovation of smart speakers and, uh, you know, Alexa and smartphones and as everything else changes, if anything, we want more kind of listening time because it's this thing you can do, as you said, you know, <laughs> you you can kind of do it while you're doing other things. You can do it anywhere. And it also has this weird quality, at least so far, demonstrated that people want to stay with a program for a span of time. You know, 20, 20 30 minutes is, is, is not a big deal for... A, a podcast listener where you think of any other media, no, you know, that's such a hard, a hard get, you know, to, 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 mm-hmm. to get an audience, you know, for that length of time. And so I, I think it's, it's demonstrated its, its resilience in the face of this kind of incredible 
acceleration of, of everything else around it. And if anything, I mean, a good example is just, I mean, a really basic popular podcast, the, the New York Times, the Daily, and one of its secrets seems to have been it picks a single story. It's not like a news summary. It's, it's, a, it's one story that they talk about for half an hour, and that's, that's proven so popular. And I think that that's really, it's, it's analogous to all of these shows that give you this, this kind of narrative payoff if you invest the time and it's not that hard to, you know, if you're, if you're commuting, you're in your car, you're doing something at home, you're, you're working out. So it seems like the kind of, this kind of perfect antidote for the time being, I mean, whether that will be true five years from now, I do, I do think that it's been able to occupy a space that is, is kind of different than, than blogging or other kinds of ephemeral, um, <laughs> kind of fads or trends. And I mean, one of the odd questions you could ask, though, is like, why did it take so long? I mean, podcasting has been around forever. I mean, it seems like, you know, and people, right. you know, when you think about like Slate in the early years in, you know, the two, 2000s, I mean, there, it was, there was always this kind of fairly small but steady niche for podcasting. And then suddenly it there's this breakout and why, you know, why is it? And, and, you know, it's one thing that I heard, I mean, some people think that that was, the, it was the smartphones that did that. It's now it's so easy to just get, I mean, it's kind of, if, if you're not using a smartphone or like an app, it's like going on your computer and looking up a podcast is sort of so laborious. You know, I can't even remember how did people do that back in the early days. <laughs> but I think it, it's become almost seamless and that sooner or later it'll just be like pulling up in your car. They'll be, you know, probably already exist. But I, I mean, just the kind of the technology that allows you to select a show the way you would select a radio station or um, so I, I think that it's been aided by changes that have happened technologically, but also maybe by this, this, this kind of news environment that in a, in a kind of world of everything changing every few seconds, having this kind of stability of, of being able to fall back on, you know, something that you can go deep on for 20 or 30 minutes is, is it's this kind of, it's like yoga or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for talking. This was really excellent. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save. 